Welcome to the Cosmic Savannah with Dr. Jacinta Delhaze and Dr. Daniel Kanema. Each episode, we'll be giving you a behind-the-scenes look at the world-class astronomy and astrophysics happening under African skies. Let us introduce you to the people involved, the technology we use, the exciting work we do, and the fascinating discoveries we make. Sit back and relax as we take you on a safari through the skies. Hello and a huge welcome to our very first episode of The Cosmic Savannah. I'm Jacinta and with me here is my co-host Dan. Hello. And we're very excited about this. Um, We have so much to talk about and we're really glad you could join us. In our first episode, we'll be talking a little bit about ourselves, SALT, the Southern African Large Telescope, and some rocks which might be getting a little close to Earth. Yeah, a little too close for comfort. (laughs) So, Dan, um, where should we start? I guess we should start by introducing ourselves and saying why we're doing this. Okay, yep, that's a good idea. So, <laughs> so <laughs> introduce yourself and why are we making this podcast? Uh, right, well, my name is Jacinta Delhaes and I'm an astronomer. Um, I work at the University of Cape Town in South Africa. Um, but as you may be able to tell by my accent, I'm originally from Australia. Um, so I was born there, I grew up there and I did all of my studies there. So I did a physics degree um, for my undergraduate uh, degree at university and then I did a PhD in in radio astronomy. Um, After that, I moved to Croatia, which is in Europe, and I lived there for four years and worked as a research astronomer at the University of Zagreb. Um, And then in August 2018, I moved to the wonderful city of Cape Town to take up my current job as a research astronomer here. And how are you enjoying it so far? Oh, I absolutely love it. This is my first time living in Africa, and it was a really big move for me, but I've settled in uh, really well, I think. And uh, so South Africa is, of course, the country at the very southern tip of the African continent. And Cape Town is a city at the southwestern tip of South Africa in a region called the Western Cape. Um, And Cape Town is uh, incredibly beautiful. It's surrounded by the Southern Atlantic and Indian Oceans. Um, So there's lots of white sandy beaches. It's very sunny. There's lots of wine growing regions and there's lots of mountains around um, with Table Mountain, of course, being the the most famous and the most iconic. Um, So I'm really enjoying living here. Uh, But my favourite thing about Cape Town is that it's such a multicultural environment. The city itself is and also the Australian astronomy community here, as it's got people from all over South Africa, uh, all over Africa and all over the world. And we're working together and sharing our experiences and expertise to do some really cool stuff, which I think other people might be uh, interested in hearing about. Yeah, it certainly is an incredible place and, and some incredible stuff going on. What exactly is your role at UCT at the University of Cape Town? Well, the exact name of my position is a bit of a mouthful. Um, I'm a Soreo Postdoctoral Research Fellow. Uh, So let me explain what that means. Uh, Firstly, Soreo, S-A-R-A-O, stands for the South African Radio Astronomy Observatory. And it's the facility that manages the many uh, amazing radio telescopes here. And postdoctoral research fellow means that I have a PhD and I'm working as a scientist or a, a researcher at the university. And what sort of research are you working on? Well, I'm a radio astronomer and I use big radio telescopes to study how galaxies have changed and evolved uh, over the history of the universe. And I'm currently using Meerkat for my research. 
And when you say meerkat, I assume you're not referring to the little furry creatures? No. (laughs) (laughs) No, I'm referring to uh, South Africa's brand new radio telescope in the Karoo region. It's it's called Meerkat. Um, And it's, it's one of the world's most powerful radio telescopes. But it's paving the way for an even bigger and even more powerful radio telescope called the SKA, the Square Kilometre Array, uh, which will be built in the future, partially here in Southern Africa and partially in Australia. But we'll be talking a lot more about radio astronomy, Meerkat and the SKA in future episodes of this podcast because there's a lot of really exciting stuff going on. There sure is. Looking forward to it. And uh, how about you, Dan? Can you tell us a bit about yourself? Yeah. Uh, my name is Daniel Kanema, and I'm an astrophysicist at the South African Astronomical Observatory, SAAO, which is based in Cape Town. I'm originally from KwaZulu-Natal, which is on the east coast of South Africa, and I did my undergraduate studies at the University of KwaZulu-Natal, UKZN, before moving to Cape Town to do my PhD at the University of the Western Cape, UWC. And you and I have been colleagues and friends for a while now, haven't we? Uh, We have. Um, I think we first met during both of our PhDs back in 2012. Yeah, that's right. I came here for a conference, I think. Um, We were working in slightly related uh, research fields, but they were also fairly different. Um, What was your PhD research about? Yeah, so rather than observations, I did my PhD in theoretical astrophysics, and I was using supercomputer simulations to study how galaxies form and evolve. Yeah, that's super cool stuff as well. And and we'll be talking a lot more about galaxy simulations in upcoming episodes. Uh, but at the moment, you're doing something a little bit different, aren't you? <laughs> I am. Uh, yeah, I'm currently employed by the SAO as a science engagement astronomer. So I'm tasked with promoting and communicating astronomy and the incredible research we're doing here. Yeah, and I think you're doing a really, really important and unique job. Um, Why do you think it's important to engage the public in astronomy? Thanks, yeah. I'm loving my job at the moment, and I think I'm very lucky to have it. In general, I think that most people have some interest in astronomy. Uh, All you have to do is go outside at night and look at the stars. Um, That makes it a very accessible field. And because of that, I think engaging with that curiosity is a great way of getting people excited about science and Uh, engaging them in some critical thinking. Yeah, so I guess that's part of the reason why we're making this podcast, isn't it? It's it's about the world of professional astronomy in Africa, but you don't have to be an astronomer or an expert to listen. It's it's for everyone. Well, I hope so. Uh, There's there's some incredible astronomy happening here in Africa, and I think it's very important that we make it accessible, not just to the South African public, but to the rest of the world. So uh, with this podcast, we aim to release an episode every second week, although at first it might be a little bit more frequent than that. Because maybe. We, <laughs> maybe. Uh, we've, we've collected a lot of great material, uh, which we'd really like to get out as, as quickly as possible. Yeah, I guess that depends on how quickly I do the editing. <laughs> but I'm going to try and do it quickly because we're really excited about the things that we have to share and we don't really want to wait. But I guess a lot of what we'll be talking about on this podcast will be biased towards things happening in South Africa um, and particularly in in Cape Town because that's where we're based and because um, there is a bit of a hub of astronomy here. Uh, But we'll also make sure to highlight the excellent astronomy happening in different parts of South Africa and in other African countries too. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of exciting astronomy happening uh, across the country and across the continent. Uh, telescopes such as Hess and Namibia 
the African VLBR network, which is getting set up uh, in collaboration with the SKA, has partners across the continent. Uh, Botswana, Ghana, Kenya, Madagascar, Mauritius, Mozambique, Zambia, Namibia. Um, These are the partner countries, and um, there's a lot to chat about, but we can leave that for the coming weeks. Right, so let's dive into today's episode. What are we going to talk about? Yeah, so today we're going to be talking to an SAO researcher about the hunt for near-Earth asteroids using a new telescope that will be built in Sutherland. That is so exciting, and I can't wait for this. (laughs) But first, I think we should explain exactly what Sutherland is and what the SAAO is, because these are both really key aspects of South African astronomy. So, Dan, you work at the SAAO. Can you tell us more about them? Yeah, so SAO um, is based in Cape Town and has been operating as an observatory for almost 200 years. But since the 70s, all of our operational telescopes have been located about four hours drive north in the Northern Cape, in a, just outside a small town called Sutherland. And the work we do at uh, the observatory focuses mainly on optical and infrared astronomy uh, rather than the, the radio astronomy that Sareo does. And we have many telescopes in Sutherland doing a variety of uh, observations, including the Southern African Large Telescope, SALT, which is the largest optical telescope in the Southern Hemisphere and the fourth largest in the world. Yeah, I've heard Sutherland is is really amazing, but I haven't had the chance to go there myself yet. Um, But fortunately, we have with us here in the studio today our very first guest, and he's someone who has spent a lot of time in Sutherland and can tell us exactly what it's like. Dr. Moses Mohotsi, welcome to the Cosmic Savannah. Hello, thank you very much for having me here. Can you tell us who you are and where you're from? I'm Moses Mohotsi. I'm from a village called Batani in the Northwest Province, and I am a salt astronomer. What does it mean to be a salt astronomer? To be a salt astronomer means that I am an astronomer that works up at salt. I get to observe with salt and help with the running of the telescope. Can you tell us more about what salt is and what it does? So SALT is the largest optical telescope in the Southern Hemisphere. It consists of 91 hexagonal mirrors, each one being about one meter in diameter. Um, And these mirrors are aligned together to create one big mirror, which is shaped like part of the surface of a sphere. And this is done in order to create a spherical mirror. Uh, So SALT is used to do a lot of different kinds of astronomical observations. We have many different kinds of instruments that are used to do different kinds of observations. We've got some that just take images, some that take spectra, some that take spectra that are at very high resolution, and some that even look at the polarization of material out in space. So as the SALT astronomer, you operate the telescope for the evenings, or how how does the operation of the telescope run? So the way it works, because it's an optical telescope, you can only observe at night when the sun is set. Um, and, and at SALT, there are two people that run the telescope at night. There is an operator and there's the astronomer. So the operator is the person who controls movement of the telescope, how the mirror is, and things like that. And the astronomer is the one who selects the targets that get observed, the instruments that are used to observe those, and checks to make sure that the data from the observations is of good quality. So you get a list from... Uh, other astronomers of what they want to observe and then you perform the observations and deliver that data to them? Yes. So SALT is a Q-scheduled telescope. um, And this means that people who want to observe with SALT have to uh, put in a a proposal and that goes through a committee that decides whether the proposal is good enough. And the committee decides which proposals are the best ones or which ones have the highest priority. And then 
when I'm up at the telescope, I get a whole list of the targets from the accepted proposals, which are available, which are up at the time. And I have to then use certain sets of parameters to uh, select which ones are observed. But there are guidelines as to what we should observe and which things should be observed before others. Um, so we don't just go up there and randomly choose, but there's a system in place that, that we use to select targets. So your role is basically to go to the telescope at night and to decide what gets observed and when. Yes, and to make sure that the, the data that comes out is of good enough quality that the, the astronomers can use the data. Okay, so can you talk us through what your typical night is at the telescope? So after supper, um, we would go up to the telescope and we do some initial setup. So we check everything is running properly and we do some initial observations that are used for the setup. And then after that's done, um, after sort of it's gotten dark enough, we then start to do some scientific observations. So then we start selecting targets and... Uh, doing the actual science part of the, the, the night. And that'll go on until the early morning when twilight uh, begins. And then we also do the setup. And after that, we then also, before we shut down, we need to do some sort of setup um, observations and tests and things like that as well. Um, and then leave the telescope in a way that the team during the day can uh, do all the engineering tests and the things um, related to that. And do you get to eat night lunch? Yes, night lunch is the best part of the night because <laughs> I knew when, it. <laughs> when it gets to 12 o'clock or like sometimes 1 a.m. in the morning, you are quite tired and it's been a while since supper and you need that, that boost to get you through the night because as amazing as observing these incredible uh, objects is, it, this is different from uh, my normal sleep schedule. So having something to give you a bit more energy to get through uh, the early hours of the morning is, is quite crucial. We have a nice coffee machine, but unfortunately I don't drink coffee. So mm -hmm. I have to rely on other forms of uh, energy to, to get me through the night. What do they pack in a night lunch? Chocolate. <laughs> I mean, surely. Like. <laughs> so in so in, in uh, so I've had um, in my observing experiences across like in the different places. In different places, they offer different things. So in Sutherland, normally I try and get some cool drink, some sandwiches, and some mini pies. Uh, that that's what the, and the the cool drink is very important because that rush of sugar <laughs> is, is is crucial for me uh, to get through the night. <laughs> Not just milk and cookies then. <laughs> No, you, you can, although maybe you can bring up some milk and cookies to, to, to supplement your, your, your night lunch. So SALT isn't the only telescope in Sutherland. There are a multitude of telescopes up on the plateau. Have you had the chance to use any of the others? No, unfortunately, I haven't gotten the chance to use any of the others. I've been inside many of the others, um, but mostly it's just uh, my friends and other colleagues have gotten to use them, but, but not me. Do they operate in a similar way or...? No, the other telescopes, it, it depends on what kind of telescope it is. So, for example, there are other telescopes um, that run, um, that are robotic. So no one needs to be there to actually do the observation. They can do all the observations themselves. And there's some that are run, can that, some that can be run remotely. So someone in another location can control the telescopes. And there's some that do need people to um, come to the telescope itself and sit in the, what we call the warm room and do the observations. So it depends on what kind of telescope you are. And we even have a solar telescope that would observe the sun during the day and you definitely don't have people inside. So we'll post some pictures of Sutherland on the website, but for our listeners who have not been to Sutherland. Including me. Including Jacinta. <laughs> um, uh, what what does what does Sutherland look like, and and why was it chosen as the location for this observatory? So Sutherland is in the Karoo, um, and it's it's in a very arid 
climate with not many tall trees, to be honest. And it, it's, it looks quite dry. Um, and the reason it was chosen is because the sky is very, very dark there, partly because there's no, the closest town is Sutherland and it's a very small town and there's no other major towns in the area. So the sky can be quite dark at night. And also because it's arid, there's less chance of rain interrupting observations. Um, so these are all very important things for those of us who want to do optical astronomy. How many uh, salt astronomers are there? How often do you have to go up to the telescopes? So there are about eight or nine salt astronomers right now. Um, and we'd normally go up once every two months, but the, sh the shed schedule does vary depending on who likes to observe more and who's doing what at the time. But essentially about maybe once every two months. And we each go for a week uh, of observing. And Moses, as well as being a salt astronomer, you, of course, do a lot of your own research, which we haven't had a chance to talk to you about today. So we'd love it if you could come on the podcast again and, and chat. So thanks for coming today and we'll talk to you again soon. Thank you very much for inviting me here. I'd definitely love to see you again sometime soon. Thank you. So we've heard that there are many telescopes already in Sutherland, but there's at least one more about to be built there, isn't there, Dan? Yes. In the next couple of years, the Asteroid Terrestrial Impact Last Alert System, ATLAS, is going to be built in Sutherland. It's going to be hosted by SAO and funded by NASA. And it's going to be hunting for very near-Earth asteroids, which are on a short-term impact trajectory. What is a short-term impact trajectory? They are going to hit Earth. Oh, right. Okay. Uh, so it's wise to look out for them then. Well, only if you want to know they're coming. Oh, do I want to know that they're coming? Mm, um, maybe it depends on their size. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, so so asteroids are rocks floating out in space, but where are they and how do they differ from, from meteors, meteorites and comets? Yeah. So asteroids are rocks orbiting around the sun, ranging from a meter to kilometers across. Most of them orbit in what is known as the asteroid belt uh, between between Mars and Jupiter's orbits. But occasionally they come a little closer to us. Those are known as near-Earth asteroids. Comets, on the other hand, are usually on very long elliptical orbits. And they'll travel way out beyond Neptune's orbit and then can pass very close to the sun and are composed of rock and ice rather than just rock. This is what gives them the, the impressive tails you see in a comet uh, as the solar wind melts the ice. Even more occasionally... Uh, these near-Earth asteroids impact the Earth and become meteors if they burn up in the sky, or meteorites if some part of them reaches the ground. There was actually a, a very bright meteor over Cape Town back in January. I'm not sure if you saw it. I did see it, actually. I was out for a walk with some friends, and we saw this really bright flash of light in the sky, uh, and we looked up, and it was sort of uh, falling very, very quickly, and it had this tail which sort of looked like what you'd expect a meteor to look like, but it was so bright, um, you know, much brighter than a shooting star or something that you see regularly in the night sky, uh, that we thought maybe it was a flare or something, um, uh, yeah, and it, it kind of went behind the hill, uh, signal hill that we were near. Um, but I, I, I thought it was gonna gonna hit the the ground somewhere nearby. And um, yeah, we looked on on the news the next day, and it, it was definitely a meteor. Yeah, no, no, it definitely was, and um, it was all over the news, and so was I. Um, <laughs> it was a, a very busy day. For me. Yeah, I was gonna <laughs> ask, did the did the meteor impact? Um, it impacted on my life. Okay, <laughs> that's not what I meant. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, so uh, no fragments were found, um, but yeah, no, it did impact on my day. 
Okay, well, you are the science engagement astronomer, <laughs> so I guess that's your job. <laughs> that is my job. Today we'll be hearing from SAO astronomer Dr. Nicholas Erasmus, who studies and characterizes asteroids, and he'll tell us more about Atlas. So what does it mean to characterize an asteroid? So basically you're observing the asteroid with a telescope, looking at the light reflecting off this asteroid, and then from that we try and learn as much as possible about it. So we want to know how big it is, how it's rotating, how fast it's moving, and where is it going. And sometimes we can even work out what it's made of. And are we in danger of being hit by an asteroid anytime soon? Well, uh, I guess we should ask Nick. Okay, yeah, fair enough. Um, I'll let you chat to him. Today I have with me uh, Nicholas Erasmus. Nick, if you could just introduce yourself, tell us who you are and what you do here at the South African Astronomical Observatory. So my name is Nick. Um, I'm a postdoc here at the SAO, and my research involves uh, asteroids, specifically near-Earth asteroids. That's my particular interest. And yeah, that's what I do here. I uh, characterize and observe asteroids. So what exactly does that entail at the observatory? What, what telescopes are you using and how are you observing these asteroids? So in principle, you could use any telescope. Uh, it would be great to use large telescopes like SALT. But the fortunate thing about asteroids is uh, they come in all shapes and sizes and they come close to us. So even small asteroids can be particularly bright. So the advantage there is that you can use small steerable telescopes and there are tons of them in Sutherland. At the moment, I'm using KMT-Net quite a lot, but the 40-inch, the 1.9-meter, in principle, any telescope in Sutherland can be used to observe asteroids. And how are you identifying these asteroids? So uh, there's an a organization called the Minor Planet Center, and observations from all around the world are being submitted to them. So they have a database of all the asteroids. So currently they just under 800,000 asteroids in this database. And I query this database on any given night that I have time on a telescope to see which ones are visible in Sutherland. Um, and that's how I pick the asteroids that I can look at and want to look at. And then you talk about characterizing these things. So... Uh, what exactly does that entail? What are you observing and what sort of colors and shapes? Okay, so there, there are two things that you can learn from an asteroid through by observing it through a telescope is um, its rotational properties, so how fast it's rotating. Through this uh, information, you can also learn a little bit about the shape um, and then color or spectra. Ideally, you want to get spectra of these asteroids because that can give you an idea of what material they're made out of. Um, the problem with uh, collecting spectra of an asteroid is that you have to, you can only look at really bright asteroids. And because these asteroids are moving non-sidereally, to keep them in a slit of a spectrometer can be tricky if your telescope can't do non-sidereal tracking very accurately. So what you can do is you can just uh, use spectrophotometry. So observe these asteroids uh, with different color filters. And that way you can get a color of the asteroid. And that's sort of... Uh, uh, um, a second prize to getting a spectra. And these colors are often good enough to distinguish different types of asteroids. So what, what types of asteroids are you picking up and how, how do you tell the difference? Can you tell where they formed or how they formed, uh, what they're made up of through these observations? Asteroids fall in various different types of classes or types. The two main types are S and C type. C stands for carbonaceous and S for silicon-rich asteroids. By looking at these spectra, we can determine whether they are S type or C type. And this can give us information on how the solar system formed. And also, if one of these asteroids are on an impact course with Earth, then depending on what they're made out of can drastically change the damage that's caused by an asteroid when it uh, does make an impact. Yeah. That was going to be my next question. So are you also 
tracking these things and narrowing down their orbits and whether they will hit Earth? You say some of them pass quite close. I mean, how accurately do we know these orbits? So uh, I was talking about this database that contains over 800,000 asteroids. Now, not all of these asteroids have super accurate uh, orbits. That's not the main aim of my observations, but as a byproduct, I can measure astrometry of these uh, asteroids, and I do submit that to the Minor Planet Center, and that does sort of tweak, um, fine-tune these orbits. So every now and then, there is a different organization that takes all uh, the the orbits out of this Minor Planet Center, and they compute orbits into the future and to see whether any of these are going to impact us in the future. So people are monitoring them and to see if they are bound to hit us or not. And are they? Uh, Currently, there are no asteroids large asteroids, I must say, that we, we are being hit by asteroids on a daily basis, right? So uh, falling st- shooting stars, that is a small asteroid that hits us. Currently, out of these 800,000 known asteroids, there are none that are going to hit us in the next 200 years. So we, we're good to go for now. That's, that's pretty good for the next little while, at least, I suppose. Uh, moving on to the next topic, another reason I wanted to chat to you. SAO has recently been announced as the host of a, a new telescope which is being funded by NASA called the Asteroid Terrestrial Impact Last Alert System, or ATLAS. What will be your involvement in this? Yeah, so just to give a little bit of background, so currently ATLAS consists of two, as, uh, two telescopes that are situated in Hawaii, and they scan the sky every night to uh, discover new asteroids. The problem with only having them in Hawaii is that you can mainly only cover the northern hemisphere. So ideally, you want to put these telescopes all over the globe, north and south, and also at different latitudes so that um, you can cover 24 hours a day. And South Africa has been earmarked to get one of these because we are pretty much exactly opposite to Hawaii in terms of north-south and also we exactly 12 hours um, time difference. So South Africa is the ideal place to have another one of these uh, telescopes to to have full coverage. It's still early days. It's been confirmed that we will get the telescope. Uh, next year, we will probably start um, construction on the, the dome. And I think 2020, the telescope is due to be installed. So hopefully, I'll be involved in all of that. And what exactly is going to be installed? What, what is the telescope and how exactly do these Atlas telescopes work? Okay, so Atlas Telescope is not a big telescope. It's only a 50-inch telescope. So the limiting magnitude is about uh, 18.5. But like I said, um, these asteroids, when they come close to us, can become super bright. There are many discovery programs around the world, uh, PanStars being one of the biggest ones. And Atlas uh, is trying to fill that gap of trying to catch the ones that fall through the larger survey. So we're really looking at the ones that are just about to hit us. So the ones that are coming really close to us, Atlas is supposed to catch those. So... Uh, to give you an idea, ATLAS is designed so that it can um, detect a 100-meter diameter asteroid with a three-weeks warning notice and a 10-meter diameter asteroid with a two-days notice. Okay, so this thing can detect these asteroids. With what sort of confidence are we detecting these asteroids? So you say it can detect a 100-meter asteroid with three-weeks notice. Does that mean we're going to detect all of them? So that's an interesting question. At the moment, not, because there's only two in the northern hemisphere. So there's 30% of the sky, the southern hemisphere, that's not covered. So if anything is coming from the southern sky at the moment, we will not be able to see these, these asteroids. So it's important that, that Atlas does get a southern hemisphere partner. Um, so it's a good thing that it's coming. Of course, once an asteroid is discovered, you need follow-up observations to refine its orbit. So what usually happens is once these asteroids are discovered, we send the observations to the Minor Planet Center. They fit an orbit and they give a likelihood that there will be an impact. So then they put it on a special list telling all observers around the world, please 
observe this asteroid as much as you can so that we can get more data and refine an orbit. The more observations that are collected to find out whether there will be an impact or not. So this all happens on a two-day to three-week timescale? This is an important thing. So like I said, uh, for a 10-meter object, we'll only have two days warning. So a 10-meter object is not too dangerous. If that had to hit Earth, it will probably just be a really, really bright fireball. So that's not going to cause any damage. So the fact that we only have two days warning is not too bad. Something like 100 meters, that could cause a fair amount of damage. Uh, the chances of it hitting uh, a town or a city directly is, of, of course, extremely small because 70% of the Earth is, is ocean. So there's 70% chance it will just fall in the ocean. So three and even three weeks is not enough time to really do anything. But it's enough time to do, say, for instance, an evacuation. So if we discovered a 100-meter object, it was going to hit us in three weeks' time and... One week out, we can by then know the orbit good enough that we know it's going to hit Cape Town, for instance. Then one week is probably good enough that we could at least make an attempt to evacuate uh, Cape Town. So that's the idea with Atlas. If we discovered something really big, like a one-kilometer object, which um, could maybe destroy a whole province or a 10-kilometer object that could be globally catastrophic, hopefully then we will have a couple years of notice. Because these large objects will be extremely bright, you can see them much further out. If we discovered something like that, yeah, then we would have to make a plan and see if we could uh, somehow either deflect or, you know, do something to, to prevent it from hitting Earth. Because if a 10-kilometer object uh, had to hit Earth, that would be pretty bad. Okay, a 10-kilometer object, yeah, that, that would be pretty bad. You, you mentioned earlier that there were 800,000 asteroids that we know of. Uh, how complete is that database when it comes to objects like 10 kilometers? We believe that we know more than 90% of those sort of 10-kilometer objects. So um, we shouldn't be too worried there because the ones, the, the really big ones, we think we know of 90% of them and none of them are in the collision course. The ones that we should worry about actually are comets. So comets um, can be really big. They can be, say, 10-kilometer objects, and they have really long orbital periods, so sometimes 100, 100 to 1,000 years. So it could be that... They are really far out at the moment and we, they're just too far to see and we will only discover them on the, on the first orbit that we see them. But then again, you know, we probably will have a couple of years uh, warning time, hopefully 10 to 20 years. And that should be enough that we could at least attempt or make a plan to uh, deflect this asteroid. Yeah. And there are lots of groups working on what exactly you would do. How would you try and deflect an asteroid like that or a comet? And how would you try and deflect an asteroid like that? So the easiest thing, I mean, this is what people want to do, is just you're just going to smash smash into it with uh, the largest thing that you can launch. So, for instance, uh, we've done some calculations. If you took a SpaceX rocket and you just put it uh, the maximum load, which is maybe something like 20 tons or something, you could uh, transfer enough momentum to, say, a one-kilometer asteroid by just hitting it with this thing, that if you did that 20 years in advance, you could probably transfer enough momentum that the velocity would change enough that uh, the, the timing would change that it would just not uh, impact Earth anymore. So, But these are all theoretical calculations, right? No one's actually tried this, and uh, no one really knows how much momentum you would actually transfer to an asteroid because it really depends on uh, the structural properties, right? If it was a billiard ball, you would transfer a lot of momentum. But if this thing is sort of spongy, uh, which it's predicted to be that these things are really loosely held together, rubble piles, um, you might not transfer that much momentum um, after you've done a collision. Then there are other crazy ideas like uh, the gravity tractor, which is you just fly a really large spacecraft close to the asteroid and 
if the if the spacecraft has enough mass, it will gravitationally attract the asteroid towards the spacecraft, and then you would just slowly pull it forward or backwards, and in that way, slowly change its velocity. But it's it's a slow method, and it's very weak. So you have to do that for like 20 or 30 years continuously to change the velocity enough for it to miss. So again, you need to discover that asteroid long before it's going to impact us. Uh, other ideas is, uh, yeah, to just um, try and uh, hit this thing with a nuclear nuclear bomb. But again, that's highly unpredictable. You don't know what's going to happen. Is the asteroid going to break into two pieces that are large enough in their own that they could cause damage? That's well, None of these things are really tested. Yeah, I mean, I was going to say, you need to know the orbit of the thing pretty well in order to know that you're going to be able to deflect it because how do you know you're not just deflecting it onto a course with us? That is, that's an excellent question. And uh, there are a lot of people who are spending a lot of time in this, these politics. Uh, politics can also play a role in this. For instance, if, we discover, if, if the Americans, for instance, discovered an asteroid that's about to impact Earth and they make the prediction that it's going to impact maybe Russia or something like that, are they going to spend all their money to launch a spaceship to deflect this asteroid in the risk that maybe they move it from Russia to the United States? You know, some, you know there are a lot of these... Uh, complicated intricacies that um, might play a role um, if we actually discover something, right? Well, they're allies at the moment, right? <laughs> we won't get into politics. Okay, well, so, I mean, it's, it's fascinating stuff, and it's very exciting that SAO is going to be involved in this. So what does this mean for your work personally? This new Atlas telescope, is it going to be able to assist in your characterization of asteroids? Again, you, you mentioned it's looking at the very short timescales, very last alert stuff. Is it actually going to contribute to you? Because you want to be looking at these things for a bit longer. So that's a good question as well. Um, Atlas's main goal is to discover new as asteroids. But because it's scanning the whole sky every night, it observes serendipitously many of these 800,000 asteroids anyway. So even now, um, there's over four years of observing data of asteroids in Atlas's database at the moment. So I'm myself and other people around the world are looking at this database already and uh, pulling out all kinds of interesting things about the asteroids that have been observed by Atlas uh, just serendipitously, right? So you, you're trawling basically the, the old databases. And, and now this, this will be the first time there will be such a database in the Southern Hemisphere. So presumably you're going to find a, a new array of, of asteroids to follow up. Yeah, exactly. And so Atlas is also, uh, the Southern Hemisphere one is also going to discover a lot of comets that are approaching us or that are only visible in the Southern Hemisphere. So there will be not only um, will they discover new near-Earth asteroids, the ones that are kind of can come close to us, but they will all be discovering new main belt asteroids and comets and stuff like that. So we'll definitely be increasing this. And this, this 800,000 uh, asteroid database is increasing at a rapid rate. Often hundreds or thousands a month are added to this database. For instance, to give you an idea, in the in, uh, I think in the 1990s, there were maybe a couple of thousand in this database, and now we're 20 years later, there's 800,000. So this it's really increasing the number of, of known asteroids, especially since sort of all the big ones have been discovered or not all of them but most of the big ones have been discovered but as soon as uh, larger telescopes come online and the technology becomes better these uh, telescopes can see fainter and fainter things and then you and because there are more smaller ones that rate also increases rapidly if you can start seeing smaller asteroids right so in terms of the larger ones then do you see atlas kind of completing that 90 percent do you see uh, some point in the near future where we are fairly confident that any catastrophic asteroids have been identified 
Yeah, so there are a few complicated things. For instance, if uh, asteroids are always behind the sun, then it doesn't matter how small or big your telescope is, you can't see them because you can't point towards the sun. So at some point, you need to do other tricks, like you need to put space-based telescopes to really uh, cover everything. Also, comets, they um, they come from all directions. So um, that's also difficult to get the completion rate for comets. And because some of them have really... Uh, massive orbits they go really far away from the sun so you only see them when they come close to us and if that only happens once every thousand years you need to be observing for two thousand years before you get complete coverage there so i think it will never be 100 percent covered um, but at least for the near earth population that i think in the foreseeable future that we would get pretty good coverage on there but i think the comets are the dangerous ones and especially the comets that are coming from behind the sun right exactly yeah so, I mean, no one, no one knows, but for instance, the, the, the globally catastrophic events that we've had in the past, like for instance, uh, the one that hit uh, Mexico, was it 60 million years ago? So it's called the dinosaur killer. That was a 10 kilometer object. Um, no one will really know, or at least I think that's not known if it was a comet or an asteroid, but there's a good chance that that was actually a comet that hit us, yeah. Just so uh, we were clear, what exactly is the difference between a comet and an asteroid? Uh, so asteroids are really uh, when you refer to the inner solar system. So uh, comets um, usually have a tail. And the reason they have a tail is because they spend a large part of their time in the outer solar system where they're not close to the sun. So any gases or uh, liquid water that's on these uh, these comets, they're still frozen. And as soon as they come into the inner solar system close to the sun, then these things start boiling off and uh, making these these plumes, which is the tail. So... There's no clear cut when, is, uh, when, when something's an asteroid or a comet, because in fact, you do get inner solar system comets. But yeah, uh, comets are usually referred to things that have a coma or a tail because they are outgassing, because they spend a large part of their time in the outer solar system, and then they come into the inner solar system and then heat it up by the sun. Yeah. Great. Thank you very much, Nick. Wow, that was really awesome. Um, I must say, I'm glad to hear that there's nothing big going to hit us anytime soon. Well, that we know of. Oh, yes, true. Well, we haven't looked in the Southern Hemisphere yet, have we? (laughs) (laughs) So just half the sky. Right. (laughs) Speaking of comets, there's a comet on our podcast, Art. Yeah, a beautiful photo by uh, Janis Brink, who is an astronomer here at the observatory, and of the comet McNaught, uh, which was discovered in 2006 and, and reached its peak over 2006-2007, Janis uh, took a beautiful photo of it uh, over Table Mountain, which we featured in our podcast, Art. Yeah, it's a beautiful image, and thanks to Janis for letting us use that picture, and um, thanks to Lana Serai for um, putting together the graphic art uh, for the image so we've we've had a big first episode. We've talked all about Sutherland and the SAAO and SALT and uh, Atlas. Asteroids. Comets. comets. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so it's, it's been a, a great first episode, I think, and uh, looking forward to many more. Absolutely. And that's it for today's episode. Thanks very much for listening, and we hope you'll join us again for the next episode of The Cosmic Savannah. You can follow us at thecosmicsavannah.com, that's savannah spelled S-A-V-A-N-N-A-H, where we'll have links related to today's episode. Special thanks today to Dr. Nicholas Erasmus and Dr. Moses Machutzi for speaking with us. Thanks to Mark Olnut for music production, Janis Brink for the astrophotography, and Lana Serai for graphic design used to create the podcast art. This episode was created with the support of the South African National Research Foundation and the South African Astronomical Observatory. 
We'll speak to you next time on The Cosmic Savannah. Welcome to The Cosmic Savannah with Dr. De- oh, sorry. <laughs> you can say your own name, obviously. <laughs>